Man of Steel, Answers, Insight, Commentary, Episode 45, Ultimate Edition. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. I'm Doc, and welcome to the Dojo, Dawn of Justice observations that cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, I rushed through some notes on the ultimate edition of Batman v Superman. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. It's been a while. I finally had the time and bandwidth to watch the Ultimate Edition this weekend, so I'm recording some of my thoughts while they're fresh. I can't promise a composed episode, but I thought I'd get something out while I can. My work has me thinking about revisions and new editions, so I would have done something about Bayesian thinking and updating your beliefs based on new information, sort of like set visits, new cuts, retcons, plot twists, and the like, but we're going to forget the larger lessons and applications and just run through some notes. I hope that down the road we'll get another edition with Snyder's signature maximum movie mode style commentary, but for now, here are my thoughts only a few hours after watching it. Oh, and by the way, it feels like a while since theatrical release, so even apart from all the new Ultimate Edition content, I was almost overwhelmed by the power to pause and replay and soak in those small details. You know that we could go over every minute with a fine-tooth comb, so I had to make a Ulysses pack and relinquish the controls just so we could watch it through without interruption. Not that I didn't go back immediately after and start exploiting that pause power. Even so, I was fixated on the new material so much and I was scribbling so many notes that I think I still need to let this settle in my mind before I properly evaluate it on its own merits. But that's the context and the backstory. Me in a whirlwind of travel and work and dying to watch this but having to wait almost two weeks to have the time and only just enough time to watch it through once. To be honest, I'd rather be watching it than making this episode, but we're coming up quick on Comic-Con and Suicide Squad, so I thought I'd get this out. As usual, I reserve the right to change my views, but man, that makes me want to do that whole Bayesian analysis thing. (laughs) But no, forget it. I don't have the time. We have just got to get to this. Okay, so just so there's some sort of method to this, let's do overall impressions first, and then whatever highlights I can pull from my notes. I apologize in advance for the disorder and the rambling that's sure to come. Like, for example, the fact that I don't have any notes on my overall impressions. (laughs) Uh, So what do I think? Um, Let me think. Overall, it's a better film. The narrative transitions are smoother. They're easier to follow and build up more clearly. It's a little overt in some places and can feel long in others, but it's well worth it to me. Superman had a huge presence in the theatrical release, but here we get more of his character. And we had a lot of Bruce's character, but here Batman's presence becomes bigger with Clark's investigation and the collateral consequences of Batman's branding. Lex's actions are much more overt. His involvement is clearer, which overall tends to make the film a little less dark and cynical, since most of those bad outcomes involve Lex putting his thumb on the scale, if not outright tipping it over, rather than being unprovoked things that are completely innate to humanity in this world. 
we get a lot of little moments which allow the film to breathe more. And that gives the audience more time to let their emotions catch up with the information. And that little bit of extended empathy helps the film for people who are on the edge, I think, or enhances it for people who already enjoy it. The central issues that most people have with the film, those are still there and perhaps aggravated by length, but mitigated by novelty, clarity, and simply rewatching the film another time. I am constantly surprised at things being raised as new to this cut, which were always there. I still like the theatrical cut for its ambiguity and concision, but that puts me at a quandary because I like discussing this film. But it's unfair to assume that everyone is discussing only the Ultimate Edition, and there are subtle shifts in the sequences of scenes which make it hard for me to keep both versions in my head. As an elemental basis to argumentation and discussion, you have got to get your facts straight. And that's why so many of our early Man of Steel episodes first focused on diegetic apologetics to reach a consensus on what actually happened in story before debating the merits of those actions, the creative choices involved, debating or analyzing themes, and so on. And there's nothing so unfruitful as having an intense discussion about some higher level concept that's in total reliance on facts that are ultimately untrue, right? With all the scene shifts, I can easily see myself uncertain of when a certain character knows this thing or that thing at this time or another in either edition. So while I'd love to keep both versions in my head, I don't think I can, and I'm probably going to default to the Ultimate Edition after I've seen it a few more times. I'm probably overthinking this, and I'm definitely rambling. Bottom line, I like the Ultimate Edition better. I think it's the definitive version for me. I think it's the version that you should see, but it's not necessarily so definitive that the theatrical version is irrelevant. Off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure you can move on through the cinematic universe without having seen the Ultimate Edition, although you're poor for it. I think the closest thing to necessary viewing in the extended cut is Lex's communion scene. And even without the haunting visuals, the facts of that can be inferred from the theatrical cut. We obviously know that Lex was caught and arrested, and his outburst after Batman leaves shows that he learned of things beyond Kryptonians from the scout ship. I'm just glad that they're bundled together because there's a few small and unique things to the theatrical cut. And as a completist who loves this film, I'm glad we have both. Now, with respect to that R rating, the content is just a step above the theatrical version with a middle finger, two F-bombs, Bruce's bare backside, and a bit more violence with blood, broken bones, etc. Generally, it's all contextual. I didn't feel that it was too graphic or gratuitous for me. Maybe unnecessary, but inoffensive. I'm not too anxious about the step up in rating. Now, what did I love? Just generally, I loved the expansion of Superman's story. I love that Lois had more to do. I love that Lex clearly did more. And as somebody who can overanalyze lines, I love all the added lines. And I just appreciate all the added layers. That material, whether in terms of dialogue, plot, or production, was always there. And we just got to see more of it and get a little more insight into those worlds. And on that note, I love the world building in that a lot of the additions were establishing shots and wider angles to give us a better sense of the setting and the world. And I'm always in awe of production populating apartments and offices, etc. to bring them to life. They're not strictly necessary to get the information for the story, but they give the audience a beat to settle into where they are. 
and thus better take in the subsequent story. Seeing some of what was cut to make the theatrical version, I can just imagine the pangs of pain letting some of that production value, plot, or people fall to the cutting room floor. I got so much out of re-watching this film in terms of picking up just how subtle it can be. Subtle is the last thing that the critic, the confused, or the casual would call this film. Of course, pointing to the things that are overtly expressed and intentionally obvious. But if you go beyond the big and the bold and the exaggerated, you'll see deft and detailed nuance everywhere little easy-to-miss things that you pick up that show the intention and the art without calling attention to themselves like something pretentious would, but simply acting as a layer of loving care over it all. It's sad that some don't or won't see it, but I love that it's there at all. (laughs) I'm getting too abstract. Let's get into some specifics. Let's get into my notes, and let's see here uh, which one... Okay, this this isn't an important one, but it's maybe a fun one that covers a lot of ground. So it's possible that all of these cuts were purely content rating related to mitigate the instances of alcohol in this film. But I definitely noticed the Ultimate Edition adding several shots with alcohol. And looking at them all, I think that you could spin it into a symbol or a visual metaphor or whatever. Look, let me pitch you the theory first and then we'll run through some examples. What if the offer of a drink or drinking is a symbol for delusion. Think about the most obvious and overt example of this. The single strongest statement is Senator Finch defiantly declaring, call it Granny's peach tea, I'm not gonna drink it. You can call me whatever you like. Take a bucket of piss and call it Granny's peach tea. You won't fall a fly on me. I'm not gonna drink it. She rather clearly rejects the delusion that renaming things changes their fundamental nature. So in the extended cut, we have even more to work with. When Senator Finch first arrives, Lex initially offers. Senator, a little bourbon before lunch? My driver's outside, I can't stay. No bourbon? Kentucky girl like yourself? We could say that Lex is trying to sell the delusion that they're friends and allies, and maybe trying to put her in the box of Kentucky stereotypes. Finch declines it all in declining the drink. Now, throughout the scene, Lex is clutching his drink, perhaps implying that his entire pitch is a delusion. And he takes three calculated swigs right after his father's absurd line that Kentucky mash is the key to health, right before he talks about magically bringing his father back, and after he tells us that devils come from the sky. In each case, assenting to each delusion every time he drinks. Another great example comes from extending the beginning of the museum scene. Leading into it, we see John Stewart roasting Superman as servers are told we've got thirsty people out there. We might come back to that, but we can follow the flutes of alcohol out where the museum director pointedly plucks one and puts it in Diana's hands, who diplomatically accepts it. But while he's giving his spiel and they're making their way to the artifact, Diana returns it to a server without having taken a drink. The museum director is deluded. He declares the artifact to be the legendary sword of Alexander, a triumph, the culmination of his career. But as Bruce bluntly puts it, it's a fake. Something Diana knew. So again, if the drinks represent delusion, the director wants her to drink the wine, symbolic of him offering the authenticity of the sword. But the spirit of truth declines both. Remember that while there's some improvisation in acting, all of this was carefully calculated and choreographed. The blocking, the cameras, the continuous shot, picking up and putting down a drink is part of that planning. So was there perhaps a purpose behind those shots? Are there other instances of drinks and delusions being offered together? 
maybe. You gotta reach a little, but in another extended scene, our introduction to Nairomi involves a bottle of Coca-Cola offered by a local to Jimmy Olsen. The delusion offered along with the drink is the local's line. A red wind is bad luck. Blood in the sky. All that wind is bad luck. In other words, everything that is about to occur is luck, yet it's not luck. We learn that it was all orchestrated on at least three levels. Lois's authentic level, the CIA acting behind her, and then Lex acting behind them both. Jimmy doesn't know about Lex's level of orchestration, so he swallows the delusion and the Coca-Cola. And when things go awry, he probably genuinely believes it just to be bad luck. Reaching further, the local also says blood in the sky, which you could interpret as violence coming from the sky, when we know the bloodshed is decidedly earthbound in nature. Then there are a bunch of cases of arguable self-delusion or comfort accompanying alcohol. Lois takes a swig of wine right after being confronted with her bloodstained shirt. Bruce does the same after waking up from his nightmare in the lake house. Anatoly downs two shots to soften the blow of his gambling loss, and Perry's coffee accompanies his acceptance of American cynicism. But back to one person offering a drink to another, we have two exchanges between Alfred and Bruce. As Bruce returns from questioning Santos, Alfred brings Bruce a tray, and on Alfred's tray is orange juice and a French press. As Alfred extends the coffee, he says, If he is indeed a him, you don't even know if he exists. It could be a phantasm. And the delusion is that there is no white Portuguese. But Bruce knows better and declines the coffee, although he offers his own lie of the dirty bomb. Later, after lamenting the empty wine cellar, perhaps itself an embedded symbol of Bruce having more than his fair share of delusion, Bruce offers Alfred a cup of coffee while explaining the necessity of the Batsuit to investigate further. And Alfred accepts the coffee, thanks Bruce, but he doesn't drink it, a sort of compromise. He doesn't accept Bruce Bruce's need for the suit, but he agrees that the investigation ought to continue under the guise of Bruce Wayne, who's been a more successful investigator of late. Another sort of compromise. Okay, one final example, Lex's party. At Lex's fundraiser, the alcohol flows freely. Nearly all of his guests are holding drinks, and we see servers carrying trays of drinks, bringing up bottles from below, but our main characters aren't drinking. Lex, Clark, Bruce, and Mercy never touch a drop. In fact, we get a little scene where a server gets Diana's attention and you can see her mouth, no thank you, before exchanging glances with Bruce. And Lex, meanwhile, is actively attempting to get people to drink. His speech begins with, open bar, the end. <laughs> a joke, but also reality in the sense that if they do drink up, none of the rest of his speech matters. And while Lex's guests are beaming and honor him, they laugh at his jokes and they want to hear his speech, our heroes aren't buying the delusion. They won't drink it. Bruce is on his own mission, and Clark wants to investigate that and Bruce's position. And Diana rolls her eyes at Lex's mythological references and clearly has kept tabs on Bruce. Mercy, too, hasn't been drinking and catches Bruce below, which he tries to deflect by using drinking. That last martini was uh, too, too many. <laughs> I like those shoes. Again, reinforcing the idea that as long as one drinks, they accept the delusion and all is well for Lex. We briefly cut away to Alfred, who offers himself a delusion before taking a swig. Go upstairs and socialize. Some young lady from Metropolis will make you honest. In your dreams, Alfred. <laughs> then Lex wraps up his awkward speech with, please, drink, 
drink. Again, symbolically, this is imploring the people to accept his version of the world, which is how Bruce attempts to placate Lex's suspicions a second time. It's unusual that Bruce would attend one of Lex's functions. So after all these years, we finally got you over to Metropolis. Well, I thought I'd come drink you dry. Well, you're welcome. Or symbolically, I completely accept your offered delusion, with the double meaning of draining away Lex's delusions. <laughs> okay, you get the idea. We get these kinds of symbolic repetitions throughout the film, like the parallels between the opening and the end of the film, or just how much stuff is falling in the opening. It's fall the season, so the leaves are falling, Bruce falls, the snow falls, sparks fall, Thomas falls, gunshells fall, pearls fall, Martha falls, all accompanied by the falling notes of Zimmer's score. These parallels and patterns are within the film, like the aftermath of the Senate scene to the aftermath of Research Park, Superman saving Lex from a fist and an abomination, and obviously outside the film too, in homage to influences like Miller's DKR, who drew from Bob Kane going on record as influenced by Zorro. Or the many visual and thematic parallels to 1981's Excalibur, which reminds me, you have got to see the documentary Behind the Sword in the Stone. It's all about the making of that film, which helped start the careers of Liam Neeson, Gabriel Byrne, Helen Mirren, and Patrick Stewart. The interviews are great. We have other external references to Snyder's own filmography and associated works, including 300 and Watchmen, The End is Nigh, etc. And we've mentioned the Pieta, and obviously there's other imagery evocative of of Golgotha, St. Michael's slaying, a war with fallen angels, and so on. If we get into the script, there's loads of citations and references to other pieces and works placing this in a larger tapestry of literary fiction. And it even draws references and parallels with its own continuity, making several callbacks to Man of Steel, the raising dirt, the reoccurrence of drones, Superman using every ounce of experience from his one fight with Zod in his rematch with Zod as Doomsday, the scout ship as a mentor to Lex as it was to Clark, the back and forth of views on the Genesis chamber, comparing Superman's death with Jor-El's, and so much more. We could do an entire show about it some other time. Even tiny references to larger DC lore like Nairomi or Jeanette, GBS or KG Beast, Rally's Diner and so on, it all suggests a thoughtfulness and intentionality that I really appreciate. It isn't the arbiter of what makes a film great, but it's great to get something special like that in a feature film superhero blockbuster as worthy of footnotes and annotation as any of Alan Moore's referential works. I don't need or even want everything to be that way, but I'm grateful that somebody dared to do something so richly referential. So speaking of notes, looking at mine, I just list off a bunch of new shots. Martha, the chain of kids at Wayne Tower, retrieving the kryptonite. Um, okay, he here's a more substantial note. It's about Jimmy Olsen being named on camera and getting shot and the return of Clark Kent. So in the future, we'll do a full analysis of the added scenes, but this is just assorted notes. But back on topic, our central apologetic for a future Jimmy Olsen still works. The CIA agent codenamed Talon was using Jimmy Olsen's name as cover so that he'd show up as a photographer if investigated. Therefore, the quote-unquote real Jimmy Olsen is still out there if we want him. Nonetheless, in the moment, the scene plays against our intuition that familiar characters from the mythos should have some sort of immunity from befalling irreversible harm or consequences. Plot armor, as some might say. Upsetting that expectation in an invested audience helps set the stakes for the rest of the film. 
Okay, so we know all that, and that justification works for many, but I just wanted to fold in Clark Kent and take it a step further. Many are upset at the circumstances of Clark's death as irreversibly ending the secret identity, and we discussed that last episode with our obituary discussion, where the funeral attendees support Clark claiming that he faked his own death. In the extended cut, that becomes a little more difficult, knowing that Harry and Jenny were there, but not by much if we let them in on it too. However, I started to think about this in a different way, not within the story as is, but the way it parallels some of the angst over nearly every allegedly irreversible comic book controversy ever. Yet time and time again, there is always an exit strategy. It could be a death and return, a broken spine, a color and power swap, a public identity, an enemy brain swap, and so on. In fact, in some cases, it's when everyone's dying and everything seems irreversible that you know that there's a reset right around the corner. And from the filmmaker's perspective, they already knew that they were going to bring back Superman. And they knew that they had to come up with an in-story mechanism to make that happen. So then, they're approaching the story of BVS already knowing that they have a mechanism in place. An exit strategy in order to undo at least a death. Well, what if the mechanism is different from the comics? What if the mechanism doesn't have to be limited to a single death? I'm not saying that this is what is happening, but just follow the logic of recreating the creative process. What if you approached making BVS knowing that you could get away with one mass resurrection? And if you had that mechanism in your back pocket, you can kill characters, you can set stakes, and you can make some rage at how irreversible it all seems in BVS while knowing your exit strategy all along. Just hypothetically, a mass resurrection takes away the angst over Clark Kent's secret identity. Coming back alone, sure, he's suspect, but let's say Clark is just one of dozens or hundreds or thousands to come back to life. Then he's nothing special, and it might diffuse some of the assignation of deity to Superman too. A mass resurrection of Metropolis, say, from Man of Steel on, might take the edge off of the collateral in absolute terms and lead to a more uncanny optimism that you find in comics traditionally. We could possibly see the return of Jimmy Olsen, Mercy Graves, or even Steve Trevor, Lex Sr., or Jonathan Kent. Jason Todd returning as a part of Mass Resurrection to become the Red Hood is a mite more acceptable than punching reality so hard that it breaks. <laughs> Maybe. I was already thinking about these kinds of possibilities by breaking down ways to make Clark's return unremarkable while preserving his secret and his career. However, a scene in the Ultimate Edition reinforced the idea. At Clark's funeral, Father Leone shares scripture from Isaiah 26. The dead shall live. My slain shall rise again. Awake and sing ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth shall give birth to her dead. As I understand it, it's a prophecy about heaven, but it reminded me that mass resurrection is a thing in the Bible. This particular scripture isn't about just a single risen savior, but quote, the earth shall give birth to her dead, unquote. So could this be telegraphing the return of not just one, but more? I don't know. I'm not endorsing this idea specifically, but I think it's a useful illustration of 
keeping our minds open, especially in a world fast becoming a comic book one. It's amazing how quickly we adapt to new rules as if they always were. Sort of the way that no one is really upset at Zod dying by way of Doomsday a second time. Take a second to compare that to how grounded Man of Steel was. One film later, and we have an immortal, magical Amazon, alternate, far-out futures, dystopian, interdimensional dreamscapes, faster-than-light alien invasion and time travel, interspecies undersea telepathy, and the ancient myth of Atlantis as actual. In some sense, it's crazy to confine our theories to the rules as we knew them, considering how fantastic the world is fast becoming. And we have to give BVS credit for getting us halfway to a Justice League film, with Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman reinforcing the magic and metas and myth within this world. We are past the impossible, we're past the mundane, and when the doors to the world of the weird have been kicked down, we can't confine ourselves to such small imaginations. We've been shown a universe where everything suddenly has a chance or possibility and it's so exciting it's so remarkable and i can't believe how stifling some people are choosing to be for example many propose that lex can never be the lex that they want now i'm not saying that the lex luther they want is quote unquote the right luthor i think within 75 years of history lex has more often been a criminal rather than a businessman and you might be more familiar with the businessman you may prefer the businessman but the bulk of his history isn't as a businessman however if that is your one and only true desire, do you really believe that it's impossible to get back there from here? Of course not. If Lex can supply a justification or defense for his behavior, then society will release and forgive him. In the extended cut, he escapes criminal liability by alleging his madness made him do it. But who would believe me? I'm insane. I'm not even fit to stand trial. We can do a legal analysis of that in another show, but that's a smaller picture of the larger principle that society forgives those with no will or choice in the matter. In the realm of comic books, we know that characters exist who can create that excuse. What if Lex has tabs on a certain green-skinned Martian as a contingency? Consider the optics of it all. Lex goes from corporate magnate, benefactor, pouring resources into rebuilding Metropolis, philanthropist, Silicon Valley-styled CEO, to international terrorist attacking nations home and abroad, who bombs the Senate, kills our favorite hero, and throws a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist off a tower, strikes the city with blackouts, also he can mad scientist a monster to tear it all apart. That complete break in behavior almost makes being mind-controlled by a Martian more sense, and that kind of excuse would allow Lex to be restored and reinforce his public anti-alien, metahuman skepticism narrative, to be justifiably against them having been so victimized, allegedly. And if you're worried about secret identities or the impetus to use them, it's arguable that between Martian Manhunter cleaning memories and impulses, Flash ferreting out physical records, and Cyborg eliminating any electronic trace, they can solve that particular identity crisis, even without the omnipotence of a backwards-talking magician. And I'll say it again, I'm not endorsing these outcomes or predicting them. I'm just saying that we can't be so closed-minded in terms of outcomes based on the mundane rules of reality anymore. From the Justice League set visit reports, Bruce's recruitment of Barry is a microcosm of Snyder negotiating with the audience. In a way, Man of Steel and BVS to a lesser degree approach superheroes with skepticism for the sake of an audience unfamiliar or unwilling to get at a why you can take to the bank. But even as Bruce is trying to make his pitch to give his reasons and explain the why, 
Barry's already on board, without a second thought, ready to go. And that seems to be where we as an audience are right now. But I completely appreciate and respect the approach so far. It's the same approach that gets credited with re-energizing the genre in almost every era. If I had time, I'd pull the clips from creators in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, and so on, who would repeat the refrain that their revival was owed to ever-increasing realism. Whether Julie Schwartz summoning more science, Stan Lee explaining Spider-Man's modern, relatable, realistic problems, Neil Adams injecting modern, relatable, realistic race and social justice issues into Green Lantern, Green Arrow, or Frank Miller on Batman, or John Byrne on Superman in the 80s, or even Mark Wade saying, quote, comics should be a reflection of the times, unquote, while giving 50s Superman a modern makeover with photorealistic rendering and deconstructive drama all the same. Wherever we go from here, I'm happy the filmmakers attempted and executed something along those lines with such specificity and sincerity before moving on. I wish some of BVS was a little more airtight, but I'm astonished at how credible the film is in most respects. However, it seems like now's the time to shift from the credible to the incredible, and I mean that in the best and most exciting way. I can only imagine how excited Zack Snyder is to get to play in ancient mythological worlds supercharged by magic and cosmic power. Every movie that he's made has had some of that heavy metal magazine influence. For Man of Steel, he got to explore it with Krypton and in the Dream Machine interrogation scene. For Batman v Superman, he had the post-apocalyptic nightmare scene. And from the set reports for Justice League, it sounds like we're going to get into ancient Amazons, prehistoric humans, and the Atlanteans of old in a royal rumble with the denizens of Apocalypse. I can't wait. Going ancient is a clever way to keep things connected, but to give the filmmakers their freedom. Just as human culture and design has completely changed over time, it, it should be the same for Amazons and Atlanteans. So Snyder can produce what speaks to him without Juan or Jenkins being beholden to his take. Not to mention, the main action sounds unapologetically comic book according to the set visits. Batman in a mech, cosmic artifacts, hordes of parademons, fully costumed characters in rooftop meetings, and Flash not quite up to speed on superhero conventions yet. <laughs> I'm so excited. I am so psyched. The DC characters really represent that original mythology, that first idea, like what is a superhero? DC is a darker, more realistic, but more mythic version of a superhero world. Characters who have flaws, who have constructs that aren't perfect, something we can identify with. All these characters, these icons, they've been part of our uh, worldview for years, so they're embedded in our culture. DC has such rich characters and stories. There's just so much to tell and so much to explore. The cool thing about the comic books in DC Universe and superheroes, actually, it started with Superman with Action Comics number one, so it only feels kind of organic and natural that Man of Steel would kick off the DC cinematic world. It feels very natural to have Superman show up first and then have Batman interact with Superman and then have Wonder Woman come up and start to open up that world. We're gonna to start to explain how those characters' stories interweave. There's a massive DC universe that's just ready to explode onto our movie screens.
we'll do a Justice League episode sometime. But I want to suggest that aside from the New 52 Justice League origin or its animated adaptation Justice League War, the story might, in a broad sense, take some of its cues from Justice League Trinity War, a New 52 crossover event which revolved around the acquisition of an ancient box while folding DC's magical spheres and deep history in with three Justice League teams. Don't worry though, we've already been told that the cinematic Justice League is much more straightforward. I just mean in the sense of folding in this larger world with the Justice League at its core. I'm happy that Ezra Miller's Flash is winning people over. You want me to put into words how psyched I am to be doing this? Yeah. That's not going to work. I'm going to start screaming. This is what I've been trying to do all day long. I've been... I'm too excited. That's how I feel. I feel like I'm more excited than it's cool to be. <laughs> I love Flash being so self-aware and communal. And in my head canon, I can completely imagine him pacing around his apartment, talking to himself before the events in BVS, debating the merits of introducing himself to Superman aloud, trying to figure out what to say, how much to share, wanting to ask about powers, about costume tips, and then realizing his clothes wouldn't survive catching up to Superman if he didn't develop a costume first missing his window to know him as he fashioned his costume and not wanting to miss that window ever again, jumping at the drop of a hat or the toss of a batarang to meet his heroes. <laughs> or whatever, I've lost the plot. This was an Ultimate Edition episode. <laughs> okay, we could do an in-depth analysis of the transitions, but I think that's a list better for a blog post. I will say that the transitions between the scenes have a nicer flow, and there's a lot of little arcs that get developed better where it's easier to follow the line of the motivations. For example, it's easier to understand Clark's path. Clark gets called out by Kahina to challenge his choice of selective intervention. To look him in his eye and ask him how he decides which lives count and which ones do not. So Clark goes to Gotham to see her, possibly to give her the opportunity to look him in the eyes. And Clark was criticized for his selective intervention, so in his montage of rescues, he's international. And immediately he catches flack for being political. Are there any moral constraints on this person? We have international law on this earth. Every act is a political act. And now, intervening on the worldwide stage, Jon Stewart mocks Superman, trying not to be seen as American. So apparently Superman doesn't want us to think of him as American anymore. And really, why would we? I mean, aside from the red and blue costume, and I don't know, fact that he has one third of the USA's initials on his chest. I assume the only reason he's not wearing the Declaration of Independence as a cape is he thinks it's too on the nose. So no matter what he does, he's criticized and being unable to win, he calls his mom, wondering whether his dad was wise or ignorant about the world at large. And Martha comforts him, acknowledging that they always understood the complexity of it all. How come dad never left Kansas? Oh, well, he just, uh, <laughs> you know how he was. What do I need to travel for? I'm already there. <laughs> just wish it was more simple. My baby boy, nothing was ever simple. There's also an elegant through line and escalation of his investigation of the bat. He comes across it looking for Kahina. He brings it to Perry's attention but gets shot down. He reads up on the effect of the bat brand, investigates the death of Caesar Santos, which leads him to learn that Batman is making children fatherless and can be only stopped with force. 
which makes for more compelling drama as both Batman and Superman looks at the other as someone who orphans children. And that sort of duality plays out again with the extended Senate bombing scene. Superman stands racked with guilt about all the dead and injured around him, treated by paramedics and EMTs. Yet that scene is so offensive to Batman, he ends up recreating a similar scene at LexCorp Research Park for the sake of stopping Superman. And there are injured and gurneys and even someone being resuscitated or undergoing chest compressions in the wake of Batman's kryptonite theft. We'll save the deeper analysis for another show. And yikes, I haven't even cleared my first chronological note after the Africa scene, which is that subtle change in Kahina's testimony. In the theatrical cut, she says, he came down so many dead. In the Ultimate Edition, it's he came down, then came fire. So let me ramble on this a little bit because I'm still working this one out, having just seen it a few hours ago. I'm not completely clear on the point of the flamethrower, despite many being convinced it's meant to frame those deaths on Superman's heat vision. It doesn't really matter, so if that's the shortcut used to understand the scene, that's fine, but I question if that interpretation holds up. If the burnt bodies were for show, then we have to question who will have eyes on it, who's going to see them and connect that to Superman, right? It's not the CIA with their eye in the sky. Their thermal imaging is accurate enough to make out the loss of Talon, so they're not going to confuse somebody with a flamethrower and a man emptying a gas can with Superman. It's not the CIA on the ground. They see the thick, dirty black gasoline smoke. They can see the empty gas can. They can see the burnt bodies, and they know it isn't Superman's clean, incinerating heat vision. It's not Lois. She knows it's not Superman. It might be for the Nairomi locals, but then that suggests that their testimony will be heard and that it needs to be true. And Kahina's testimony is a lie. It's a script. Her parents are alive and back home, so there was no need to burn the bodies just so she could blame the fire on Superman. She could do that anyways. In terms of forensics or evidence, it doesn't add up either. Flamethrowers and gas cans leave residue. They immolate, whereas heat vision incinerates, as demonstrated by tyrant Superman in the nightmare scene. Superman wouldn't need to collect bodies in a pile. Superman wouldn't collect the guns in a pile. Superman wouldn't need to secure the guns for his own safety like Kanaizev's men would. And again, none of this matters because none of this evidence is escaping Nairomi. Except, I still don't know why Kanaizev does what he did. I might argue that it's not a matter of utility, but a subtle show of character. That creepy Kanaizev has a thing for flamethrowers, which we call back to later. But that doesn't seem quite right either, because he's the one admonishing his men to hurry. And I know there's some theories out there about melting bullets, but there are holes in that theory too. So I need to think about it more, but for now, the heat vision frame-up is okay as a surface-level rationalization. Though, one thing I'd note about changing the line in Kahina's testimony is that later we learned that it's a script supplied by Lex. And one wonders if maybe the lines were calculated to trigger a reaction in Batman. If Lex retraced Bruce's movements on the day of the Black Zero event, he might be able to surmise that Bruce's first glimpse of Superman was coming down from the sky with fire. Something to think about. Okay, let's move faster through these notes. Delta Charlie 27, a shout out to Batman's first appearance. And I should say, I don't intend for this to be a comprehensive list of additions, changes, and their effects because I'm late to the party. I'm sure that there are a ton of those out there already. Just imagine this as going over an outline with a highlighter. We get an interesting nuance with Lex's added lines meeting the senators. Uh, follow me. No, uh, Dad started saying that he named the company uh, after his kid at investor pitches. Rich old ladies, they, they thought it was very cute, you know. Write checks for Lex. 
He still says that his father named the company after himself, like in the theatrical cut. But playfully, he's saying his father is a liar, that he changed his story. Dad started saying he named the company after his kid at investor pitches, taking money from old ladies with cuteness, write checks for Lex. It's just a few lines, but it's densely packed with daddy issues, characterizing his dad as an ego-driven, lying, charming manipulator, willing to use his kid for money. But Lex's patter is so fast and airy, and he winces apologetically in explanation, so you don't get the gravity of what he's saying. Lex has mastered his father's craft of illusion. Kahina is on TV and she says that They say the Superman is a hero. Okay, but who's hero? So this is another explicit statement of the status quo prior to the African incident that Lex was seeking to change. That even his own puppet says that Superman is said to be a hero before. But Lex is literally causing people to question that. Which lives count is something that this Superman has to wrestle with. Wallace Keefe's wall of clippings is so exciting now that I can pause and read those headlines. And if these are reliable, shifting a tectonic plate is both a nice Superman 78 reference and an impossible feat of strength. There's an obvious homage to the cover of Action Comics number one. And I want you to note that apparently Superman does not engage in arrests or conventional crime fighting. Even where Superman foils a crime, the criminals flee the scene as opposed to being captured or arrested by Superman. And this is actually incredibly important in terms of how Superman defines his mission, his sense of justice, and why it's an incredible shift for him to intervene with Batman at this juncture. But we're barely a fifth into these notes, so let's move on perry has a new line oh um watch yourself over there in gotham don't let him take your lunch money which perry thinks is funny but clark shakes his head and this shows that perry is biased against gotham as high crime and possibly sees clark as a pushover and potential victim and by making the mugging lunch money sort of saying clark's a juvenile a school kid we get more of lois and clark reacting to wallace keith and perry's end of the love affair headline little moments like these letting them act more letting the scene breathe letting the emotion land before moving on. We get to decompress even more with Clark's ferry ride over to Gotham. Love it. Note that the boy has a toy with a cape, likely showing that he's a fan of Superman. And Clark says, I'm not a cop. <laughs> That's great metatextual stuff. Come on. Again, I don't want to totally break down all these new scenes. There's so much new stuff. But the main thing is that in this cut, this is Clark's introduction to Batman as a presence. And that's much more intriguing through the lens of those that are under him than that more clear-cut TV report. And as a thematic transition, Clark's scene ends being told that Batman is angry and hunting. And we go into Bruce in an underground fighting scene where he's hunting. When we come to the Daily Planet pitch beating, the context has changed. Lois gets a new line during the pitch meeting which clarifies the intrigue around the bullet she says i think the u.s government is arming the rebels while claiming to support the elected government that conspiracy is a rabbit hole for another time but it supports lois's investigation beyond just defending superman and we get clark confronting lois on this hidden angle so why didn't you tell me you're digging up snakes low it's kind of dangerous that is why i didn't tell you so more acting, more sets, more production value, more connective tissue, including clarity on Clark's specifically requested presence at Lex's fundraiser. Benefit for the Library of Metropolis. Someone on the committee requested that Clark Kent cover it. Probably some old charity crone who's got a thing for nerds. 
Then we get a really strange character beat with Perry putting Clark down as a nerd. Along with that lunch money comment before, Perry's inexplicably coming off a bit of a bully. I get why those lines were cut, and I'm still trying to figure out their place in the film, especially knowing that he flies all the way to Kansas to attend Clark's funeral. But you know what? This just came to me. And maybe that's Perry's Ultimate Edition arc. He starts putting down Clark for being meek and mild-mannered, a schoolyard victim, a nerd. But then Clark starts to chase something violent and dangerous, the Batman. Maybe Perry thinks that Clark is trying to prove himself. So Perry tries to bully Clark back into position, yelling at him to make him back down. But from Perry's perspective, Clark not only doesn't back down, he ends up dying chasing the Doomsday story. And maybe Perry thinks that Clark was trying to prove Perry wrong, to show that he wasn't that meek or mild. Maybe that's why, despite a Death of Superman cover story, the first thing Perry turns to is Clark's story. And maybe that's why an editor-in-chief flies all the way to Kansas to attend the funeral of a staff reporter. That interpretation only works if Perry doesn't know Clark is Superman, and I think there are still ways to read it both ways if you really want to. It would explain why Jenny is in attendance, since they were two of the Daily Planet staff who arguably saw Superman kiss Lois, along with Steve Lombard, whose absence in the film explains two things. First, why Perry puts Clark on sports, and second, a little Easter egg at the end of this scene. The nameplate over one of the cubicles says Jay Oliva, sports writer, and we know that Jay did storyboards for these films and is an accomplished DC animated feature director. Moving on from this scene, we get another of those little dramatically ironic scene transitions. Clark is summoned by someone unknown, who we later learn is Lex, and the next scene is Senator Finch being summoned to Lex. From Bruce's nightmare to Lex's party is much smoother without the interruption of the bullet plot, though that unexpected shower scene is a little bit jarring. When we find the deep hidden meaning behind it, I'll let you know. (laughs) Senator Barrows and Knaizev are at the fundraiser, incidentally. I've got some fun facts about the Parthenon cake that crosses Bruce's path, but another time. The earlier context of all the preceding scenes enhances one of the interpretations I have for the Colorado flood victim scene. Now, some have challenged the lack of instantaneous action, and the easy apologetic for that is he's assessing the situation, figuring out the best way with his powers to securely rescue the most people. However, I've suggested too that Superman may be wrestling with a larger policy issue in the back of his mind. It's raised by which lives count, Superman choosing the woman he loves over others, and later the issue of tribalism, choosing sides between Martha and a manipulated Batman. Superman could be struggling with what it says, how it looks, and what it means if he does or doesn't save the family that paints his symbol first. Is he expected to be impartial, without allegiance or loyalty, completely just and unbiased? If so, say that in his objective assessment, the family that painted the shield actually is logistically the best candidate for rescue first, but only by some margin. However, if he fears people thinking that he favors people who paint his shield, is it worth saving the second best candidate so that people don't make painting his shield a policy or priority? And how much of that gap in risk is acceptable, if at all? Is it acceptable to be biased against the family because they painted your shield. When your every action comes under a microscope and isn't taken at face value anymore, and your every choice gets magnified by the media on a world stage, it makes decision making harder and more frustrating. You can feel lost, like you can't win, like the world is too complicated and too big. The world's too big, mom. 
Then make it small. Just, um, focus on my voice. Clark's characterization remains spot on, and we miss this moment in the theatrical cut. Clark calls his mom in the middle of the night because he was raised to know he could always let them in. Clark's question is about how big the world was to dad, and Martha's answer is that he made it small. Clark's wish for simplicity is because he's overwhelmed by complexity, and Martha shows that she understands. There's a deep complexity to the nature of Superman being a godlike being with godlike powers. It's about keeping the complexity and truth of the character without ruining anything else. Be their hero. There's so much packed into these lines, but that's another show, another totally new scene, another thematic transition. This little projectile, the evolution of man hurling rocks at one another, defies the simplicity of its ilk as an odd little duck of intrigue, cynicism, and conspiracy. Nothing was ever simple. Love the scene, but I just want to highlight one exchange, the question from Lois. Could be DARPA black box. Who could find out? Nobody would want to. Right there, explicit in the dialogue, it isn't something easily traced. Lois reinforces this with other lines elsewhere, but if and when somebody says, why use easily traceable rounds, point them here for an explicit expression of the opposite. Alternatively, ask them when's the last time they were able to meet with the Secretary of Defense, two times in secret. Loads of info in Clark reading up on the Bat brand, and we get another little world-building story buried in the pages of these props. If you track the authors, you'll see that Brad Elliott, a staff writer, wrote on the Wayne Tower collapse of the Daily Planet. But now, two years later, B. Elliott, an online editor, wrote the Judge Jury Executioner article for the Gotham Free Press. So even in a small thing like that, you can track the career of an off-screen, unseen journalist within this world. And another largely irrelevant prop point, Clark's desk pad calendar indicates that it's October, although the days line up with 2014. It's neither here nor there, just something that popped into my head. Dialing back to transitions, we have Lois being commended as a reporter because she's still able to be shocked, and we go into a scene where Clark's conscience is being shocked by Batman's branding, which takes us into a scene with the branded Caesar, which lets us see Keith released, which takes him home and then to Senator Finch. But then before Caesar's left our memory, we pick up his untimely end. And then knowing that it's a hit several steps removed from Lex, we cut to Secretary Swanwick washing his hands, an idiom or symbol for denying responsibility. It all flows together so well. Lois's statements in the bathroom confrontation make a little more sense. Perry confronts Clark. We talked about that. We get the new Jon Stewart scene, which is part of a lot of the returned or extended shots which increase the media's presence in the film in the spirit of DKR. We talked about the thirsty people and alcohol. And I also want to point out that the museum director is taking Diana away from talking with an elderly gentleman and woman. And I wonder perhaps if she prefers the company of those with more age and wisdom. Perhaps their experience of man's world is closer to her own entrance to it. We get a new line, which is a second tie between an Alexander and psychopathy. And we question whether we are to draw any comparisons between the so-called Alexander the Great and Lex Luthor. Hey fella, swell dis, but now you got the panhellenist from Pelahelipis, stepping up's foolish as well as useless, little vassal you bitch, let me spell out the list. I brought foes to their knees in Phoenicia, breezed through Gaza to Giza, had the Balkans, Persia, Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan in my expansion pack. Kudos! for the glory I got from winning every single war that I fought, so this'll be straightforward, I'll take up this sword that I brought and slice you in half like the Gordian Knot, and I'll sword to the top like the eagle whose feather I was born. In the helmet that I wore as I swatted my many 
my pod and they be praying for the torture to stop. But I would leave them contorted and they be screaming and roaring until their vocal cords were torn up for sure. And I would hollow music level high from a horsey and draw. I went and I make wish I'm at a motor you're not. We get a longer nightmare sequence seeing the retrofitted vehicles. We get a better sense of this as a ragtag ad hoc underground rebellion, improvising school buses and the like. Skipping forwards after Bruce and Alfred argue about going to war, Bruce gets a new line after how many stayed that way. 14 hours. The deadline that Bruce gives Alfred is sort of a end of conversation, do what I say sort of moment, which has its own little arc with that added line. I don't deserve you, Alfred. No, sir, you don't. (laughs) And on transitions again, how many good guys are left? And we transition to Clark being a good guy. Loads of stuff in this new scene, how people within the system work, the cartoon significance, etc. And that scene magnifies Batman's presence beyond people living in terror, beyond the brands and the deaths, to somebody who's causing collateral that's leaving children without fathers. And it's a challenge to the lie of the life of the violent vigilante crime fighter. All right, skip, skip, skip. Uh, Mercy gets a scene with Lex receiving the kryptonite, and she seems genuinely happy for him. And I could be wrong, but I think this might be the only overt evidence that she was ever aware of Lex's criminal activity. I think it was something that we all couldn't help but assume, but here it's clear. So from Lex's silver bullet to Lois turning over her bullet to Swanwick, asking him to evaluate if Superman is good, to Senator Finch rhetorically asking, how do we determine what's good, to Superman in Kansas considering the call to Capitol Hill. Kahina gets her subplot, Lois learns it's all Lex, and calls Perry about it. Anonymous source can verify everything I told you about what happened in Nairobi. An anonymous source. Run it. Lucifer engineered the desert. It was an ambush for Superman. Trust your reporter. Think Watergate. Yeah, and you need to think litigate. If you're wrong, Lucifer will shoot the paper out of existence. You need proof. No, it needs to run now. Before the hearing, if Superman knows it might change what he said. I am not going to risk the paper so that you can pass notes in class to the man that rescued you. Some things you can infer from their exchange. First, Lex does not own the Daily Planet, since Perry is worried about him suing it out of existence. Second, Perry is again using grade school to dismiss his reporter and a slight suggestion of a relationship. Third, Lois begs Perry to trust her. But because he doesn't, consider what happens. Arguably, Superman never gets the message and people die. And this feeds into the scene where Lois asks Perry for a helicopter. It's often interpreted as Perry knowing Clark's secret, but with this scene, it can be seen as part of his arc. He didn't trust Lois and people died, and he wasn't going to make that mistake again. It's kind of crazy how much more story you can get out of Superman's supporting cast in the Ultimate Edition. I am so glad that we have this edition. Now, fourth, we see this again later when Lois keeps trying to call Clark, but Lois doesn't have a reliable means of reaching him. There's no signal watch in this world yet. Fifth, and finally, it addresses why Lois doesn't scream and shout at Superman when he arrives. Here, she states the stakes very clearly to Perry. Her concern is what Superman will say with respect to the African incident without knowing that it was a setup. No one knows that this is life and death information. So on to the bombing. The single biggest change in our understanding of the story, in my opinion right now, is the revelation that Kahina was lying and that Senator Finch knew it right before the bombing. He paid her? Not, not only paid her, threatened her. Gave her a script to learn. Her parents are alive back home. But the girl's got a conscience. 
He's been using the committee as his puppet theater. It makes it a little more difficult to assess just how much of Kahina's story is true. Her rhetorical points still stand, but they may be moot in fact. <laughs> and I'm going to avoid lecturing on justiciability. The revelation also changes the tension and the tenor of Senator Finch's last lines. Note that Kahina's 11th hour confession doesn't take away from Senator Finch's ultimate character choices and position. She still denied the import license without knowing the truth. She still listened to Keefe and still called for accountability with Superman before knowing the truth. So she still seems to be a moderate optimist seeking clarity. And we get the added character trait that she admires Kahina's conscience and honesty and likely expects it from Superman. The necessity of the bombing from Lex's perspective becomes far clearer to the general audience member. Now seeing that Senator Finch would have excoriated Lex and exonerated Superman, Superman if Lex hadn't killed her. We get a scene of Superman helping out and leaving, and we get increased media scrutiny about Superman's involvement, which I find mind-boggling. I don't know how you could connect the two in any kind of rational motive, but maybe they were trying to simulate in the audience frustration with the media when you know that they're wrong. After all, we know Superman has nothing to do with the bombing, so we're no longer being confronted with the media asking reasonable questions, but raising false accusations. On the other hand, I should stop being so surprised at our own flawed human nature, because how many audience members readily condemned Superman for the intentional actions of another, simply because he was standing in the same room? Alright, as long as we're talking about the bombing and exoneration, the Ultimate Edition introduces Superman's inability to see through lead overtly as a limitation. The wheelchair and the bullet from the desert were made from the same metal. The desert, the hearings, everywhere Superman goes, Luther wants death. But Luther goes through all of that trouble, creates a bomb out of a wheelchair and then alters it to reduce the blast. What do you mean? The inside of the chair is lined with lead. You couldn't stop it. You couldn't see it. In the theatrical cut, it's implied by the atomic symbol for lead, PB, scratched into the grenades prepared by Batman. However, here, they just come right out and say it. Despite being a part of the traditional mythos, there are still some interesting inferences to be had. First, that this limitation is not public knowledge. Note that Jeanette knows the context of the bombing. She knows that Superman was there, and if it was public knowledge that Superman has x-ray vision and can't see through lead, then she wouldn't have assumed that the lead lining was meant to limit the blast. It's also possible that Superman's x-ray vision isn't public knowledge. So as a corollary, it seems that neither Lois nor Superman have shared that information with the public overtly. Second, we can infer that Lex Luthor has independently learned many of Superman's powers and limitations. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have known how to hide the bomb, he couldn't time Superman's arrival in Nairobi or at LexCorp Tower, and he wouldn't be so confident that Doomsday would kill him. Knowing Doomsday's specifications is meaningless if you don't know Superman's somewhat. Between Batman's map marking Superman's encounters, Wallace Keefe's wall, the montage, and more, we can surmise that Superman has been pretty busy in the past two years, and it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to come up with scenarios which allow an observant Lex to suss things out. I glossed over it, but we also see Kanaizev kill Kahina, and we later see Keefe's apartment, which all reinforce Lex's ability to cover up his crimes. I think I've already mentioned a couple times the parallels between the aftermath of the Senate bombing in the aftermath of 
Batman hitting Research Park. Uh, during the prep time montage, we get an extra shot of Batman assembling that sci-fi spear shaft, reinforcing the idea from our last episode that there's more to it than meets the eye. We also have the movie trope of the highly audible operating system. Lots of blips and beeps and sound effects. No analysis, just wanted to mention it. Uh, we have Lex bleeding over Zod's body. Not a part of the extended cut, but something coming from the special features, I appreciated the overt statement that Lex considers Doomsday a sort of son. So Lex creates Doomsday, tells Superman he's born to be your destroyer. Lex has a kind of like Freudian psychology and he creates kind of a son. He thinks of Doomsday like a son. And he has this almost paternal feeling for Doomsday. There's also a line excluded from any cut about Lex assuming obedience. Ancient Kryptonian deformity obeys only me and born to destroy you. Your Doomsday. And if that's your take, that's okay. I think there are some logical issues with that interpretation and that the line was properly cut from all versions of the film. However, we need to revisit Doomsday and Lex's endgame eventually anyway, so we'll discuss that then. Even without the special features, Lex's affection for Doomsday can be inferred from his statement, blood of my blood, but it's explicit in the extras. And that reinforces the idea that Lex doesn't necessarily have an issue with powerful monsters or Kryptonians as a concept. As I said in episode 40, too, he's in awe of the scout ship. He weeps over Zod and he feels kinship with Doomsday. This is not somebody inherently prejudiced against Kryptonians or aliens as a concept. He wouldn't lament Zod flying too close to the sun if he simply hated Kryptonians or aliens. He wouldn't proudly claim Doomsday as sharing his blood. No, Lex's problem is specific to how the world views Superman. Speaking of which, the extended cut gives us several new small scenes showing the impact impact of anti-Superman protests on ordinary people who seem upset at that shifting narrative. Then we get Clark climbing the mountain and Lois spurred to action by the orgy of evidence uncovered at Keefe's apartment. And even as those voiceovers continue, we get that glorious shot of Lex overlooking the city in a golden light. And I'm just reciting scenes at this point. Okay, um, let's see. What do I have here? Um, well, many people ask what's the significance of Jonathan's pile of rocks, and it's called a camera. Uh, C-A-I-R-N. You can look it up. It's a metaphorical milestone where Clark turns the corner on one of the central moral dilemmas of being the Superman. Uh, we get all these little scene extensions. So falls the House of Wayne. You can't point fingers. Lois is kidnapped and whisked away by Terio Janitorial. Kanaizev's walk up to Martha. Diana packing to leave. And, you know, I pointed this out on Twitter. She has laid out on her bed as she's packing Action Comics number one, Detective Comics 31, Detective Comics 27, and Superman number one. <laughs> So there's an extra push in the title fight, extra violence in Martha's rescue, some extra lines between Lex and Superman, and we'll cover all of those another time. Doomsday hits the helicopter on his way up to the top of LexCorp Tower this time, and he downs an Apache by throwing some debris. Martha gets a scene waving down cops and waving at Batman, and we get an added shot of Superman getting hit by Doomsday's heat vision, a slightly more graphic death. Lois has more time to mourn. The communion scene is inserted in. So much to say about the 
expanded ending, but another time with the power to pause, I can finally read the paper. And I don't think it's strictly canonical in my estimation based on the error in Clark's birth year and the fact that the contents start to repeat, but I like seeing Clay Enos get a photo credit and it's still interesting texture, as is seeing Metropolis empty, casseroles and cameos all another time. Lois gets more time to react to Clark's engagement ring, and the attendees are no longer abstractions, but faces and names that we know. Father Leone, Pete, Perry, Jenny, Swanwick, Ferris, Lois, Martha, and more. It's nice to see that they looked into the Clark family tree and correctly identified that Jonathan's parents are Harold and Eliza, which reminds me that in Man of Steel, Jonathan says, our family's been farming for five generations, and that's about how far back the standard Kent family tree from the comics goes. Lex's encounter with the Batman is extended to include a reference of his first appearance in Action Comics 23. Prisoner AC 23 1940. The warden wants to speak to you, so stand to your feet. We know Lex is in Bell Rev from the badges on the guard's shoulders when he's shaven and from the article about his arrest. It's only in the Ultimate Edition that we learn that Batman intends for Lex to end up in Arkham, and it's only that threat that seems to rattle Lex in the slightest. Whatever you do, wherever you go, I'm watching you. This is how it all caves in. Civilization on the wane. Manners out the window. <laughs> I'm insane. I'm not even fit to stand trial. That's right. We have hospitals to treat the mentally ill with compassion. <laughs> but that's not where you're going. I arranged for you to get transferred to Arkham Asylum in Gotham. I still have some friends there. They're expecting you. Otherwise, Lex's wordplay is magnificent, and he seems defiant in the face of the bat. And that confidence comes from knowing what's coming, even if we don't. Just like knowing allows the filmmakers to take the characters and worlds to lows and highs and through arcs. They can afford to have Batman take Alfred for granted, an insulting ultimatum like 14 hours, when they know that redemption is around the corner. I don't deserve you, Alfred. Just like Superman can say, no one stays good in this world, because the filmmakers know that he'll say, you are my world, and that he inspires Batman to say, men are still good. Just like Perry can fail to trust his star reporter because the filmmakers know that later he expenses a helicopter on her word alone without explanation. Just like Swanwick can question the halo on Superman's head because later, when the chips are down, he shows that he has faith in him, he objects to sacrificing Superman, and he mourns his loss. Just like the filmmakers knew that they could kill Superman because they know he'll be back. Knowing what's coming when you're creating means that the filmmakers can push the dark when they know the coming light. It can be hard to see in Blackest Night, but so completely obvious in hindsight. The darkest we've been is now behind us, right? So here comes the dawn, the hope, the light. I do subscribe to this notion that the heroes, they're ciphers for us and they're ways for us to be able to speak about the world. I think people do tend to see heroic projections of good as nostalgic or corny. And I think there are some people, maybe people who have children in their lives, who want to be able to provide stories, or if you think of it in a deeper sense, like ideas of good. Could the men that started DC Comics have guessed what the company they began 75 years ago would one day become? Would it be unrecognizable to them? Or do they have a notion from the start that the voices and visions of each generation of new writers and artists might forever invent the company anew? You know, one of the wonderful things about working in comics is you get to build on people and people build on you. 
But you have all that under you, and then you add to it and say, I'm going to make my mark over here. I'm going to tell the story that hasn't been told about this character. And it's not just entertaining people. It's giving them something to think about and some values and maybe something to live towards. Being 75 years is a good thing, shows you longevity and staying power. 75 years, you don't want to be your grandfather's superhero either. The spirit of innovation that was there at the company's creation is still its guiding force. The characters are so flexible, you can't break them. They've worked in every era because creators have always found a way to talk about what's interesting to them now, what's happening in the culture now. Superheroes are these archetypes that live within us and then somebody figures out a way to present them to us in a way that is compatible with the realities that we live in. They're still around after all these decades because they have been allowed to evolve. Superman has become a household name. Batman is recognized in every country around the world. In the 30s and 40s, you know, the newsstands were choked with comic book publishers and comic book characters that are forgotten today. DC managed to guide those characters into the future. The size and scope of DC today might well be far beyond the wildest dreams of the ambitious men who began it. But the characters continue to be built as they always have, by drawing on history and culture and personal experience to convey the deepest hopes of the new generation in whatever form the comics may take. I have no idea how much longer books have for this world, but I do know people like Siegel and Schuster, people like Bob Kane and Bill Finger, Julie Schwartz, bless his soul, that Alan Moore, these people came up with characters and stories that are gonna be around forever. Whether you're reading it on a small thing that looks like a diamond that you tap with your finger and it beams the entire content straight into your retina, I don't know. But I can tell you that 100 years from now, there will be kids who want to find out what's happening with Superman. Okay, I'm out of time. Thanks so much for listening. Right now, I make these when I can, not on demand, so I can't commit to an immediate release schedule. But if you're looking for regular, ongoing DC Films content, the Suicide Squad cast and Justice League Universe podcast have you covered. Okay, I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. And I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. Quick question for you. I ask you a few questions. One question begs another. Let's raise those questions. But the question still remains. So many unanswered questions. Question mark. You're the answer, son.